the difference between zealots and politicians is that politicians make promises that they never keep. Zealots keep their promises. Zealots mean what they say. And then when they are given power, they do what they said they were going to do. And these guys are zealots. Welcome to the Miko Peled Podcast. Welcome to the Miko Peled Podcast. Miko Peled, how are you? Good. Nice to be with you, Ellie. How's it going? It's going all right. It's our first live podcast or tape recorded for 2023. We just can't. We just, I just put out the episode where you were speaking in Boston. It was great to see you then. Yeah, it was good to see you too. It was good to see that uh, there was recognition given to the Holy Land Foundation, which for all, you know, all practical purposes has been completely erased from people's memory and is, doesn't really exist in the public arena at all. And it's such a travesty, such an immense miscarriage of justice which involved so many aspects of the U.S. government and the Israeli government. And this should really be front and center, I think, everywhere, because it was such a travesty and such a terrible miscarriage of justice. But somehow it's just been buried under so many probably other issues that seem to be more burning. But it was good to see that this the, um, the Community Church of Boston decided to give the Sakun Vanzetti Award to these wonderful people and to the, what was a wonderful organization, which was the Holy Land Foundation. Yeah, no, exactly. It's, yeah, I'm really glad that you are playing that important role in getting the word out about this and about the Holy Land Foundation five. And yeah, and we were just talking a little bit before we hit record about what's been going on in Washington. You were saying Hakeem Jeffries seems you're, you have high hopes that he will be a big friend of Palestine, right? I wouldn't go that far, but just to, you know, yeah, no, just to go back to the Holy Land Foundation, just, to, just, 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 just real quick. I think that, uh, two things that I found really quite surprising when I started working on the book Injustice, the story of the Holy Land Foundation five is number one, how few people knew about that case and the response I got from people once I told them about what happened, this terrible miscarriage of justice, but also when I heard about it, the first thing that came to my mind was the case of Sakun Vanzetti. <clears throat> and again, how few people in America remember or know about the case of Sakun Vanzetti, where it used to be folk songs written about it. And the entire world stood up when these two innocent immigrants, Italian immigrants in the 1920s, were falsely accused of murder and then executed. And the entire world stood up, and this is the 1920s, when... There were no phones or computers or really any modern means of communication. And here we had, there were people in Shanghai and in Tokyo and in London standing up and for this terrible injustice and protesting it. And here we are a hundred years later, number one, nobody remembers it. And number two, a very similar case, which is the Holy Land Foundation five, where thankfully nobody was executed, but five excellent men who happened to be Muslims and Palestinians were thrown into federal prison, accused of running a terrorist funding network, falsely accused, a terrible miscarriage of justice, which the FBI was a part of it, the Justice Department was part of it, the Treasury was part of it, the president was part of it, actually more than one president, but starting with President Bush after 9-11. They were accused of something that was very easily proven and very clearly shown to be not true, and yet they were found guilty 
and spent many years, from between 15 and 65 years, in federal prison. And again, so few people heard about it, so few people talk about it. Although it encompasses, it's like it crystallizes the, all of the problems, first of all, within the justice system, with all the racist, systemic racism in this country, and this relationship between Israel and the United States. And, and it's all there. And so I wrote the book. It came out in 2016, Injustice, hoping that it would reach someone that would read it and be just shocked. I don't know if it's Trevor Noah or, or John Stewart or, I mean, somebody who is on the right side politically, at least, or at least approaching the right side politically and would have an interest in pursuing this. And so far it hasn't happened. And it's actually very hard to even get people interested in hearing about this. So that's my little spiel about that. And so it was really good to see that there is someone who is paying attention. There is somebody who knows. And we're still hoping that somebody will pick up that glove and run with it or pick up with this thing and challenge the system and demand that some president, they tried it with Obama and he refused to do it, but some president com commute their sentences and free, allow these men to, to be free. But and that's, and then maybe that's a segue to what you're talking about, the, uh, who may well be the next, if not the immediate next, but a future candidate for the Democratic Party for president. Yeah, no, Senator, it was a really good point when you said in your speech that, you know, they will be free when Palestine will be free, when the U.S. and the world does what needs to be done to ensure the end of Israeli apartheid. Yeah, yeah. I, the, yeah. The cases, uh, these two things are completely related. They would not be in prison. They would not have been. They would not have been shut down. None of they would not have gone through this this hell. Them and their families and their communities would not have gone through this hell had they not been Palestinian and Muslim. That there's no question about that because all the indications are that they did not only did they do nothing wrong, but they were totally invested in doing good. And all the evidence that is needed is there. And the evidence that the government tried to demonstrate is flawed in, to the, in its most extreme way, completely flawed. But as I mentioned, I think there was a determination by the government and there was a determination by the judges to put these people behind bars regardless. And so there we are. This is where we are. And whether a future president, like maybe you were mentioning that you're talking about Hakeem Jeffries and his. His speech. The alphabet speech. We'll have to put a little clip of that in here. I think in many ways that was the equivalent of Obama's. I think it was 2004 when he spoke at the Democratic Convention. And it was obvious that he was going to be a serious contender for the presidency. I think this he placed himself. Jeffrey's placed himself in that, in that spot now. The question is, will he challenge or will the Democratic Party allow a serious challenge to Biden? Or whether it's going to be in four years. But I don't think there's any doubt that he's, he's going to run. And it'll be interesting to see what the Republicans do. It seems to me that Liz Cheney was a very potential front runner right after the January 6th committee was ended. But now, and I know that she's campaigned for, for Democrats in the last elections because she is so opposed to Trump and his politics. So we'll see if she runs and if she becomes the candidate or what happens with the Republican Party. But I think it's obvious the Republican Party is more fragmented than ever before. And the Democratic Party seems to have united. So it'll be very interesting to see what happens. The Democratic Party is united for better or for worse. Yeah, I'm not one of those people who expects some kind of a presidential messiah to come and solve and suddenly end this toxic relation between Israel and the United States. And as Israeli historian Elon Pape says, Isra the United States gives Israel $3.8 billion knowing full well 
Israel is an apartheid state. It's a racist, violent state. It's a brutal regime. So the only conclusion can be is that the United States wants that regime in place. It wants an apartheid regime to be in place in Palestine. It wants this brutality to take place against Palestinians. Because it's not like they've been giving it, they gave the $3.8 billion once and then said, oops, we made a mistake. It's a bad regime. We stopped. No, it's a commitment that's been going on for many years, as has been the apartheid, as has been the violence against Palestinians. And the only conclusion that one can reach is that the United States is quite happy with having this regime in place in Palestine and having Palestinians live through this just hell. And again, I said this before. The hell that Palestinians have been living through up to this point, including 2022, which was a record year, the number of Palestinians murdered by Israel, a record year. Palestinians are going to be looking at this entire period up to, this, up to the beginning of the commencement of this new government as the good old days. I think what we're about to see with, this, uh, with these new players that Netanyahu chose as partners, what we're going to see is far worse than we've seen before. Palestinians are going to experience far more oppression, far worse brutality, far more, a lot more of the state-sponsored terrorism. And the question again is how many Palestinians, how much do Palestinians need to suffer before the rest of the world stands up and speaks up? But there's no question that this new government is going to raise, raise the level of brutality and oppression to levels that we've not seen before. There's no question about that. We're already seeing it. Israel has killed three Palestinian children just in 2023 in this first week. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is probably kind of leftovers from things that were planned by the previous government, because I don't think these things happen like overnight. I think this is stuff that has been planned and these attacks in Janine and Nablus and the things that are, these things get planned in advance. So I'm sure this is just leftovers, but what we're going to see, but one thing that we saw actually, which is probably, which is absolutely part of this is one. There's a move by the Israeli government to stop all payments to the Palestinian Authority because the taxes the Palestinian Authority collects go to Israeli bank. Why they agreed to this, God only knows, but that was part of the Oslo plan. So the tax are collected and they sit in Israeli bank and then the state of Israel passes those taxes, that money to the PA. And the people are now in government, the people that Ben Gvir and Smotrich brought with them those two being the two, the two main characters of this new faith, they have been calling on Israel to stop sending those payments. And of course, stop to, to stop sending those payments means the collapse of the PA. And the rationale is that much of this, these, that some of these payments go to as stipends to political prisoners, whether they're in jail or they're out of jail, but this is like a stipend for them because obviously they found lost their bread earners. And when they come out of jail, they all very often can't work because of the injuries both emotional and physical, that they have endured while in prison. So Israel has always been saying this money is going to support terrorism, to encourage terrorism, and therefore it shouldn't be sent. And it's very likely that now this is going to be the next decisions coming down from this government. And another thing is, which is also very concerning, they just pull permits for top PA people from going into Israel. In other words, permits to enter for the Palestine. And this... Just a second. This is, uh, this government wants to show that it is not like previous governments. It's not going to negotiate. It's not going to talk with. It's not going to work with the Palestinian Authority. Now, Palestinian Authority, as most people know by now, are contractors that work for Israel. 
and they're there so that Israel does not have to talk to trash in the Ramallah and Bethlehem and some of those places. And now this new government, one of the things that they're trying to show is that they will not do even that. In other words, they're going to stop this relationship with the PA because they're all terrorists and that sort of thing. Now, of course, this is, it's a political move. It has nothing to do with content. It has nothing to do with what they actually did. In this particular case, a historic uh, moment or a, you know, event took place just a few days ago when Karim Yunus, who was the, the longest-sitting Palestinian political prisoner, was released after 40 years. And he is from 1948 to Palestine. I think it's from the town of Arara. Arara, if I'm and, just a, and also, just to step back for a second, do you want to explain what the term 1948 means? Yeah, 1948 Palestine, it refers to what was what Israel has been between 1948, when it was, sorry, 1949, when Israeli boundaries were set, until 1967. So the state of Israel, the boundaries of Israel before 67, which means without the West Bank, without the Gaza Strip, and without East Jerusalem. So there are lots of ways people call it. Some people call it Israel proper. Some people call it all kinds of the pre-67. It's basically the part of Palestine that was, became Israel in 1948. And so it's called 1948 Palestine. But the Palestinians who live there are citizens of the state of Israel. And yeah, and I just want to, I just want to make clear. So a lot of times when you hear supporters of Palestine say 1940, what they mean the same thing geographically that many people mean when they say Israel, it's an effort to delegitimize Israel as a state. Yeah. It's a way to not say Israel because you're right. Because if we call it Israel, if we call it Israel, that we're legitimizing the occupation of 1948, at which time 80%, almost 80% of Palestine was occupied. So if we call it Israel, we're legitimizing it as though we, we accept that occupation and we only reject the part, second part of the occupation, which is the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. The reality is that none of it should be given legitimacy and that all of Israel is actually occupied Palestine, but there are different parts that were occupied in different times. Plus, the Palestinians who lived within the 1948 boundary, the boundaries that were set then are citizens. The Palestinians who live in East Jerusalem or live in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip are not citizens. They have no citizenship. And of course, the Palestinians who are, who are exiled and are now in refugee camps also have no citizenship. So it's a way to, to like you said, to explain what we're talking about and not legitimize the state of Israel. So in this particular case, Karib Yunus was, was, from, was from 1948 and several Palestinian officials went to congratulate, obviously, Palestinians for Palestinians. This is a big step. And, and so Palestinian officials of the PA visited his home, traveled into, inside 1948 boundaries. And, uh, and so the new minister of defense, who was a, another war criminal, he was a former Israeli general of Galant, he so denied entry permits from, from them. So they can't enter anymore. Whereas the PA officials are all, one of the perks is that they have the CIP pass and they can travel in and out. What's a CIP pass? VIP. A VIP, oh, VIP. You know, sorry. <laughs> it's a VIP pass, which allows them to travel freely to different parts of the country. Um, and they have different particular checkpoints that they go through. So anyway, which are easier to go through. So that's the, so these are the kinds of steps that we're going to see more and more of by this government, which makes absolutely no sense. Israel needs a PA just like the PA needs Israel. And denying the PA funding and denying PA and Palestinian Authority officials the possibility to do what they do is going to create a reality where the keys are handed back to Israel and, uh, and Israel is going to do something with these territories because there will be no Palestinian authority. And now 
Bezalel Smotrich, who is both the minister of the treasury, but also he's a minister within the Ministry of Defense. And when you think about this terminology, if you're a citizen of any other, whatever, Western democracy, people in government have a particular portfolio and they are responsible for that portfolio. So if you're the Minister of Defense or the Secretary of Defense, as they'd call it in America, then that is your portfolio. Certainly, these are political appointments, but they also are people who somehow have career, had something to do with that particular ministry, with that particular portfolio. In Israel, it's just politics. It has nothing to do with anybody's experience. It has nothing to do with anybody's education or anything like that. It's basically, depending on where you are on the political totem pole, with the defense ministry, treasury, state, or what they call foreign affairs, these are the top three. Maybe there's one or two others that are important. But they've got God knows how many ministers and subcabinet deputy ministers, because these are all political appointments. So Bezalel Smotrich, who was really no more than really a racist thug, who through a lot of perseverance managed to climb up to the point where he has two posts. He is the, he's a treasury minister, which one would think would be more than enough for one person, but he also is a minister within the Ministry of Defense. In other words, there's a defense minister, but also another person, which is Bezalel Smotrich, and there's a part of the Ministry of Defense that is allotted to him that he wanted to be sure to be part of. And that is what's called the civil administration, which is the administration that deals with the lives of Palestinians. So if Palestinians need a permit, if Palestinians have a fine, if Palestinians, anything that has to do with civilian Palestinians, they go to the civilian administration, which is really part of the, it's really part of the military, but it's called the civilian administration. Smotrich does not think that there needs to be a special administration for the Palestinians in the West Bank, but thinks that they should be annexed. In other words, annexed, and the Palestinians just have no rights, but all within the state of Israel, because this also creates difficulties for the settlers who live in the West Bank, having this, have this other agency deal with, with civil issues. They're not issues that don't, they're not military issues, directly military issues. It's incredible. Just as I say this, I'm thinking how complicated and absolutely insane this must sound to somebody who was not, you know, familiar with all this. But it's, it's reminding me, sorry, it's reminding me how Republicans in the U.S. are like anti-immigrant in all sorts of ways. And they do so many things to limit and disturb and terrorize immigrants. But at the same time, they need immigrants, like immigrants do so, so many important jobs in this country. Like you're saying, there's still going to have to be some sort of administration in the West Bank. Yeah. So what Smotrich wants to see, and this is something that he said publicly many times, and this is something that now he's going to be able to enforce because he's holding two very important seats within the Netanyahu government. Now, his whole life, he was nothing but this, this gangster, this right-wing settler, Arab-hating, homophobic, gun-toting settler. And that's his, that's his constituency. And now he is holding two extremely sensitive, extremely important administrations that are under him. One is the civil administration that deals with the Palestinians, and the other one is the entire treasury of the state of Israel. So this is unbelievably, this is just unbelievable. But the point is that he will do everything he can to make sure that his vision which is that Palestinians will be given three choices, live as residents with no rights, leave the country, or fight and die. And he's going to make that a reality. His partner, which is Itamar Ben-Gvir, he's in charge 
of every aspect and every agency that deals with the Palestinians who live within 1948. So between the two of them, they govern the lives of 100% of all the Palestinians within historic Palestine. And that's why I keep saying that, number one, Palestinians have never, what Palestinians are going to experience is going to be unprecedented in terms of the violence and in terms of the brutality and in terms of the strengthening of the oppression. And number two, that the international community needs to demand guarantees for the safety and security of Palestinians. Because under these two people, life for Palestinians is going to be worse than it's ever been before. And mind you, when we're talking about some Palestinians, like in the Nakab, for example, the Bedouin, and we're talking about people who already have no access to water, electricity, education, roads, or medical care. And these are citizens of Israel. So what we're going to see is many more of these communities destroyed. Many of these small villages throughout the Nakab, some of them are small, some of them are big, but many of these communities of some 300,000 citizens of Israel who are Palestinians, Palestinian Bedouin in the Nakab, their lives are going to be destroyed more than they have been. And in 1948, they were, they were really dealt a heavy blow. So this is going to be even worse. And he believes that the, what happened in 1948 was incomplete. I'm talking about Smotrich. That now they need to finish the job. And that's precisely what is going to happen. Wow. But they, we're not saying they're actually going to finish the job. They're going to try their best. And one, one would hope. Yeah. We've got to try Yeah, our best to stop them. And you mentioned Bedouin villages. Some of them don't have electricity. Some people might not be familiar with the term unrecognized Bedouin villages. That, like you say, they don't have electricity. They're not essentially recognized by Israel, but they're in 1948. And it's, yeah, life is very difficult for them, but that's the only option they have when they're not given a right to build and to be a village. And so they just got to survive if they can. Out of some 300,000 Palestinian Bedouin who live in the Nakab, about a half live in unrecognized village. So we're not talking about a small number of people. Now, if you go to the recognized communities, the recognized towns and villages, it's not like you're driving through, I don't know, Fifth Avenue in New York, in Manhattan or anything like that, right? We're talking about communities that are deeply deprived already in terms of their right to build, in terms of their right to cultivate their land, in terms of their rights to even the ability to get water and electricity is a challenge. Not much different than life in Gaza in many ways, maybe, or certainly worse than most Palestinians live in the West Bank. Although some Palestinians in the West Bank do live in, under the same conditions. The Nakab, you know, is a very fertile desert. As Israeli communities, Israeli settlements in the Nakab are some of the wealthiest communities in the country. Some of the highest standards of living for Israelis is in the Nakab because Israel is trying to promote and want people to go there. Another minister, which is part of this group, of this, of this uh, Smotrich Ben Gvir unity group, is going to be in charge the, of... What is this, the name of that group? Sorry to say. Well, there's two groups that united. One is called Otsum, which is uh, Jewish power. And the other one is the Tzunut Adatit, which is uh, religious Zionism. And... Um, and Ben Gvir is part ben of... Ben Gvir is, is Otsum Ayudit. He's the bigger of the two. But they knew that had they united... And it's interesting because Ben Gvir and Smotrich hate each other's guts. Um, of course, all the so, races also hate each other. When yeah. So, yeah, so like, it was a the, the neo-Nazis versus the nationalists. So they hate each other's guts. Something like that. But they knew that if they ran together, 
they stand a really good chance of really winning big, and that's what they did. So they ran together as one list, and they won big. They're the third, third largest block in the Israeli Knesset. And between them, they've got a lot of important a lot of important government portfolios. And again, one of them is the development, what's called the development of the Galilee and the Negev, or the Nakab. And that means getting rid of the Palestinians who reside within those areas and pushing and getting subsidies to Israelis to go in and either build new settlements, Israeli settlements in those regions, or go ahead and move into Israeli communities that already exist there. But this has been, again, one of the issues that also created in his, a few years ago, he created a, a, an organization called Regavim. And that organization is dedicated to terrorizing Palestinians, particularly in the Nakab, but not only. And so to him, again, to have him and Smotrich be in charge of the lives of Palestinians like this and, and just completely de destroy and terrorize as much as they can it is a huge accomplishment. And considering these people... I can't even begin to describe what, what loathsome, racist, Arab-hating, homophobic these people are, but they are now sitting in very key positions. And I'll say one more thing about that. I think Netanyahu should watch his back with these guys sitting in, in power because there's no question in my mind that Ben Gvir wants Netanyahu's chair and he will, not, he will stop at nothing to get it. And Netanyahu, up to this point, is the most popular and really considered kind of the most mature and dependable politician within the Israeli political world, Ben Gvir is going to, I think, over, overtake him, even if it means stabbing him in the back, quite literally. And so we'll see how that develops. But this is very dangerous. And again, another member of another party called Noam, which kind of joined this coalition, is one of the biggest homophobes, again, within the Israeli political spectrum. And he's going to be in charge of curriculum within the Israeli Department of Education. And so if we are appalled by the idea of what's called conversion treatment, to them, this is exactly what they want to do. So these people will be in charge of finance, security, which means dealing with Palestinians, education, and development, development as in developing settlements and so on. So really, they're running the show. And Netanyahu gets to sit in the big chair and be prime minister. But they are the ones that are going to be executing and creating, not only executing, creating policy and executing these policies, which is really how the racism and how the apartheid regime functions is through through policies and, and funding, yeah. Yeah, the picture that you're painting is how it's not just that the military is going to be more anti-Palestinian, it's just so many aspects of people's lives yeah. will be more anti-Palestinian because yeah. of these unite the right, right-wingers who have united. Yeah, and, it's, and the, the two other phenomena that are interesting, one is they're also... These people are very homophobic as well. In other words, they are they're a bastardization of the Jewish religion in many ways, but they are religious people. And so they take everything to the extreme. And the issue of being homophobic and creating or demanding conversion therapy for, for people and that sort of thing that is going to be policy because one of their people is now going to be in charge of developing curriculum within the of education. And so what we're seeing, which is interesting, is that many of these things, or some of these things, are uh, overlap into or spill into the rights of is regular Israelis, liberal Israelis, if you will. And so just the other day, maybe yesterday, we saw, I don't know, 20,000 or so Israelis protesting in Tel Aviv for their democracy, for their rights, and things like that. And many Palestinians are saying, oh, look, this is great. Or pro-Palestinians are thinking, oh, look, Israelis are standing up. Israelis are not standing up to what is going to happen to Palestinians. 
We saw people like Tsipi Livni, who was a Likud member and a previous minister and so forth in different Likud parties, governments. This is not about ending the apartheid regime. This is only because some liberal Israelis are worried that some of these restrictions are going to touch on them as well. And they probably will. So they want to defend their democracy. They want to defend the Jewish democracy that exists within the apartheid state. This is very different than standing up for the rights of Palestinians, for the liberation of Palestine, for real equality with Palestinians. And so they created this very wide tent, as they say, which allows everybody who is to the left of Mussolini to does not like the Ben Gvirs and the Smotriches, either because they're racists or homophobic or because they don't believe really in democracy and that sort of thing, but not because of the Palestinian issue. But there are also the people who stand for Palestine also, they were there, but they were really the minority. They were really the minority of the minority. So we have to remember that when the Israelis stand up and march in Tel Aviv for their democracy, they're talking about their democracy, which is a democracy that applies to me if I live in Israel as an Israeli Jew. It does not talk about liberating Palestinians or liberating Palestine from the apartheid regime. And I think this is a trap that many people on, on, on the pro-Palestine side think, oh my God, look, I haven't had this conversation with, with a friend journalist who lives in Gaza. And she was saying, wow, should we look at this? Is this a good thing? I said, no, we don't give a damn about their democracy. We want democracy. We want a free democratic Palestine, not a democracy for Jews within Palestine that also oppresses Palestinians. So it's a completely different struggle. And I think it's important for people who are kind of on the Zionist liberal or on that kind, of, that kind of spectrum of the left to wake up and for us to understand really that there's a big difference between what we're talking about in liberating Palestine and equality and what they're talking about, which is the infringement of some of their rights as privileged people within the apartheid regime. Yeah, it really, I often think about apartheid South Africa and things did not change. Obviously, people like Nelson Mandela and Desmond Tutu, they did excellent organizing in South Africa, but it was outside pressure that actually made a difference, that actually brought down the apartheid state. Yes, and also the fact, and also the fact that the whites that were participating in the struggle were not these liberal, they didn't take their cues from these liberal, liberal South Africans, or we would compare today to liberal Zionists. We had people like Joe Slovo and Ruth First and L.B. Sachs, and these are people who were dedicated to the liberation of South Africa and to real equality. Joe Slovo, was, they all, many of them came from the South African Communist Party. And so between the Communist Party and the ANC, there were people of all races who fought against the regime as opposed to liberals who just want to make sure that their part in that is safe as liberals and maybe not go so far in terms of the oppression of the other side, which is a huge difference. And that's why it was, that was the kind of raceless or colorless struggle that the ANC adopted by working with these very dedicated white people, many of whom, by the way, were Jews. Joe Slova was first, Albie Sachs, this whole list of them who were, were Jewish. So they were dedicated to a real free South Africa. And so I think there's a, an important distinction between Israelis or on what is called the Zionist left left and the more radical Israelis myself, like Mpape, who call for a real ending the apartheid regime and building a real free and democratic state in Palestine. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's an important point. There are real allies. It is possible to really be of the privileged group and support those who are being oppressed. 
but yes, we need to demand that real, not just people who are upset about certain aspects of the oppressive regime. And I, of course, it still stands. We still do need that outside pressure too. Well, oh, absolutely. Of course. Of course. Yeah. Or stop giving them billions of dollars. That's a good That's a step in the right direction for sure. Yeah. So there's, okay. So there's the day-to-day things that are changing because of these new ministers. There's also the, of course, the military. And then there's these sort of symbolic things that have a lot of meaning and big effects, like Ben Gavir walking up to Al-Aqsa. Yeah, that is one of their biggest, uh, the, one of the most important and one of the biggest pillars, if you will, of their agenda, which is to Judaize Jerusalem. Judaizing Jerusalem means destroying any remnants of Islamic or Christian characteristics in the city. And not, nothing points to Islam in Jerusalem and Palestine more than Al-Aqsa. So what they want to do is, number one, and they will do this now that these two men, between Smotrich and ben they control the police. They control the permits, they control the border police, which is a more militarized agency within the police department. Then they control certainly Jerusalem and, and they control the civil administration, which is the civil side of the occupation, civilian side of the occupation. And so there's no question they're going to allow more and more settlers onto Al-Aqsa. Eventually they're going to want to build a place for Jews to pray and then they will just get rid of, get rid of Al-Aqsa. They call it the Hebronization of Jerusalem, because if, if people who know anything about Hebron, Hebron is the home of the Ibrahimi Mosque, or what Jews call Marat HaMachpelah. The Ibrahimi Mosque is the fourth most sacred site for, in Islam. And it was, it's, again, it's one of the most important monuments, Islamic monuments within Palestine. And similarly, Jews have some claim to it because it's mentioned in the Jewish scriptures. What they've done was, is they've taken a large part of the Ibrahim mosque and created a synagogue where they allow Jews. And then they take more and more and they allow more freedoms for Jews at the expense of the Palestinians. Then they allow Jews on particular days, pretty much whenever they decide, to enter the Muslim part. In other words, to enter the mosque part or the, what, it was le- what is left of the mosque part of the Ibrahim mosque. And eventually they're going to kick out the Palestinians completely and it'll become what the, these settlers want, which is a Jewish religious monument. They're going to do, they're definitely going to do, or they're intending to do the same thing with Al-Aqsa. And they've got the model in Hebron that they can use. These are the same people, these are the same settlers. In fact, the Ben Gvir lives in Kiyot Arba, which is a settlement in, right next to Hebron. And so that's exactly what they're going to do. And this is, a, they, this is Netanyahu giving the finger to the entire Arab and Muslim world, even though the Abrahamic Accords somehow are trying to show that Israel is not does not exist in opposition to Arabs and Muslims. It just giving, allowing these people to sit in his government with such key positions, knowing full well that, that, that the Judaization of Al-Aqsa, the Judaization of Jerusalem, the Judaization of parts of Palestine that are still Palestinian, is their top agenda. This is giving the finger to all of them. And for reasons beyond understanding, he thinks he can get away with it. And we'll see where that leads. Right now, of course, all signs are that he can get away with it. But we'll see what happens with that, where that leads. On that note, what are some of the things that you see? We're only a week or so into this new year. What are some of the things that you see happening going forward? Trying to get you in trouble. I mean, mean, predictions is a very risky business. Yeah, no, not in this case. I think in this case, just like predicting that Tanya was going to come back to power, that was a pretty safe bet. I've been saying that. 
I've been saying that all along. But I think that all the things that they said they're going to do, they're going to do. And I think creating a reality in which Palestinians, and it's pretty much already the reality, except for some formalities, where Palestinians everywhere live with no rights. Israelis build and live wherever they want on any part of historic Palestine that they feel like with no restrictions. Right now, there are some restrictions on building for Jews within the West Bank. They will eliminate all those restrictions. There are some, there was some very small semblance of paint, perhaps, as to what was done to Palestinians by the army and by the border police, which is, like I said, militarized side of the Israeli police force, who operate, by the way, in the West Bank and in East Jerusalem. And so whatever restraint was there will be thrown out. Ben Gvir is the minister, also the minister of uh, his ministry over us, the police. Israel has a nationalized police force, so they over, overlook the, the police and they will create policy, which the police force will have to follow. And it will also impact, without any doubt, the ability of people like us to function within the state of Israel. So all the activists who are, like I said, left of Mussolini, but maybe a little bit more, a little more radical than liberal Zionists, and maybe even organizations like that are quite acceptable, Combatants for Peace, and and some of the other some of the other NGOs that that exist within the normalization world, their their work is going to be impeded without a doubt. One Israeli journalist, Israel Fry, who was an who was a Haredi Jew, he's an Orthodox Jew, but he stands on the right side of the issue of Palestine. And I encourage people. He writes in Hebrew, so I, people can go look at his stuff, but it's all in Hebrew. He posted that for a Palestinian to kill a soldier is not, is not murder because the soldiers are a part of an occupation which is illegal and people under occupation have a right to resist their occupiers even by force. So he was already called he into agrees. the police. He agrees with the UN. And... Yeah, he agrees with it. This is, the, this is the international law. And but he's saying it from like a religious perspective? He's saying it because he believes this is true politically. Okay. And so he was called into the police for questioning. In fact, he was, he was, he was, he was, they had this kind of a sting operation where somebody called him up wanting to talk to him as a journalist. And then when he showed up, he was ambushed by a bunch of cops and handcuffed and thrown into a Jeep and all that and taken in for interrogation. <clears throat> I have a sense that because he's an Orthodox Jew, they maybe treated him more harshly because he's supposedly supposed to be even closer to them. But this, I think this, we're going to, uh, Israelis who enjoyed the privilege under the apartheid regime are going to see some of those privileges taken away for sure. I don't think there can be any doubt about that as well. You know, they said what they're going to do. And I said this before, the difference between zealots and politicians is that politicians make promises that they never keep. Zealots keep their promises. Zealots mean what they say. And then when they are given power, they do what they said they were going to do. And these guys are zealots. Reddit. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. I have an appointment I have to go to. <laughs> so we better close. All this right. was a good well, one. I don't know. Maybe we got to wrap it up somehow. Let me say, what can people do? What to look out for? A closing thought. I would say that everybody needs to call their elected officials. Everybody needs to talk to, and again, like I always say, from, from school board up and demand that guarantees be given to the safety and security of Palestinians. Because the life of every Palestinian now is far more, is in danger, in imminent danger. And that's what we all have to do. We all have to demand that safety and security of Palestinians is guaranteed. Yeah. I think it's so important that you focus on that framing because who can argue with that? People should be safe. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. I got to run. All right.
Thanks Talk a lot. Talk to you later. Talk to you. Bye. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. And don't forget to subscribe and share with your friends. Thanks a lot, everybody. Thank you.